I invite you to open your Bibles, your tablets, whatever device you have to Luke chapter 7. And I want to read to you verses 18 through 23. The disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf Here, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, these verses, folks, tell us about one of the most unusual incidents you'll ever read about in the entire Bible. Luke tells us that when some of John the Baptist's disciples, his followers, reported to him, that is to John, that Jesus had been doing some miraculous things deeds, he sent immediately two of them to Jesus to ask if he was the Messiah. In other words, he had doubts as to the identity of Christ. He wasn't sure if Jesus was Israel's Messiah. Now think about this. This is a shocking thing to read. It's shocking because of who John the Baptist was. This man was the forerunner of Christ. He was the one crying in the wilderness to make the path of the Lord straight. He was the man who had, about a a year earlier, had officially introduced Jesus to Israel by preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, the king of heaven is here. Repent, he's here. And yet now, this same man, we're told, actually had doubts concerning whether or not Jesus was even the Messiah. So how can this be? How can John the Baptist doubt This was a man who, according to the New Testament gospel narratives, had earlier affirmed strongly, boldly, Jesus as Messiah. He had referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had held such an exalted view of Jesus that Matthew, in his gospel account, tells us that he initially tried to prevent Christ from being baptized. Why? Because his was a baptism of repentance and he recognized that Jesus was sinless and therefore he had no need for repentance. He said this, I have need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Why are you coming to me, Jesus, in a baptism of repentance when I have need to repent but not you? You're sinless. And then at Christ's baptism, John had clearly witnessed the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove which was the sign from heaven that this was the Messiah, this was the Son of God, which John verbally testified for all to hear. Listen to what the Apostle John, not to be confused with John the Baptist, what the Apostle John in his gospel account says. John chapter 1, verses 30 through 34. This is he on behalf of whom I said. Now he's quoting from John the Baptist. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, 
I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. That is to say, he remained upon Jesus. I, John said, I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, so John is saying, I didn't know who he was initially. I didn't know who he was, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself, John said, have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He's saying the Spirit of God revealed to me that whoever you see the Spirit descending upon like a dove, that's the Son of God. John said, I testified. I testified boldly of this. Yet now, now folks, it's, it's a little over a year later, and Luke tells us that John the Baptist is wondering if he has made a colossal mistake about Jesus, as if somehow he's misunderstood and been wrong in proclaiming him as Messiah. And so to find an answer to his confusion, his doubt, his perplexity, he sends word to Jesus by way of some of his followers to ask the Lord if he's actually the Messiah or should we expect someone else to come who is the Messiah? Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Now folks, the fact that John the Baptist had a doubt like this, it's not only important, It's relevant for us because it reveals that even the most godly believer, even the most mature believer can fall into doubt, uncertainty, confusion. As we'll see a little later in this chapter, Jesus will applaud John the Baptist as not simply a great man, but the greatest man who had ever lived up to that time. That's what our Lord said. Consider this. Chapter 7, verse 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. Think about that. John is greater than Abraham. John is greater than Moses. John is greater than any of the other prophets up to that point, Jesus said. And yet, the greatest of men can fall into doubt and confusion. And certainly, none of us are immune to doubts. However, we certainly can't commend John for his doubt. We can't justify John for doubting. But in spite of that, there is a certain amount of encouragement that we receive from it because it tells us that we're not the only ones who have ever doubted God. And none of us are above doubting him regardless of how strong our walk with the Lord has been, how mature we've been in Christ, how long we've been saved, how much Bible knowledge we have, how much we've been used of God in his service. Doubting God is a temptation that is common to every believer in Christ. For example, we often read in the Old Testament Psalms how the various psalmists, they struggled with with their own doubts about God as spiritual as these men were. They had their, their times of doubt. Sometimes their doubts focused on how the psalmist felt at the moment that God had forsaken him. He was going through a trial, going through some difficult anguish, pain, suffering. And so as I read earlier to you from Psalm 13, David said this in the first three verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now think about this. David is saying, how long? I feel forgotten by you. God, 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I'll sleep the sleep of death. Now here's a man who's troubled with doubts. He's suffering. He feels as if God has forgotten him. He might even die because God has just left him alone. That's how he feels. Now he'll later say, I, I'll trust you and I am trusting you. But this is honestly how David was feeling. I feel alone. I feel like you're off somewhere else and you've left me in my pain and, and suffering. Sometimes the psalmist had doubts over the way God deals with the wicked and the way he deals with us as believers. Psalm 73 verses 1 through 3 and then verses 13 and 14 will clearly explain this. This is a psalm written by a man named Asaph who struggled From his perspective, God was letting the wicked do whatever they wanted to do and there are no consequences for their sin. He said, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. I almost stumbled in my walk with you, Lord. My steps had almost slipped. I almost fell down spiritually. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked As I looked around, Lord, I almost stumbled in my faith because I see the arrogant who are boastful do whatever they want to do and they seem to get away with it. He says then in verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So here the psalmist is telling us how he has struggled trying to understand how the wicked could prosper and yet he is a believer he, as a believer, had, had ongoing difficulties. No matter what he did that was wrong, God chastened him. But unbelievers can do whatever they want and seemingly they get away with it. He said, I, I almost stumbled over this. Doubts concerning God were not restricted to believers in the Old Testament era as if the only reason they had these doubts is because they had limited understanding. We in the New Testament era have so much more understanding, so we're not going to have doubts like them. But that's not true. So often, Jesus referred to his apostles, those who were closest to him, those who knew the most about him. He called them those of little faith. And he asked them, how long will you doubt? How long will you doubt? There's also the incident of the man who came to Jesus struggling with faith and doubt, who said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And of course, there's the story of one of our Lord's key disciples, a man by the name of Thomas, actually an apostle, who will forever be known infamously as doubting Thomas because of his skepticism, because of his pessimism. He, he failed to accept the word that Jesus had risen from the dead. He had doubts. Now, these biblical examples of, of doubts on the part of genuine believers, they tell us that doubting is simply a hazard that affects all true Christians And if we're honest, we would all have to admit that doubting God is something that at times we've all done. For example, when we're going through intense pain and suffering, it's not uncommon to find ourselves falling into doubt about God's love and his his concern for us. Lord, if you really cared about me as you say you do, then why are you not relieving me of my pain, especially when it's chronic pain or when circumstances don't turn out As we think that they should, we may find ourselves doubting God's wisdom or his will. 
Lord, I don't understand why you would let this happen. I thought you had my best interest at heart. Or when someone does something to us that is just plain evil and unjust, perhaps an unjust accusation, we may find ourselves questioning God's sovereignty and his goodness in allowing such a wicked thing to happen to us. And there are many Christians who struggle with doubts of their Salvation, they have doubts, they have assurance problems. A whole letter is written to people like that. It's called 1 John. They have doubts about their salvation. Then there are others who have doubts about the trustworthiness of God's word or some other important theological issue. So it is clear from scripture that doubts can affect all of us. And therefore, we certainly know that John the Baptist was not the only believer to ever experience a sense of confusion, perplexity, and doubt. Still, still, the fact that John the Baptist had doubts about the identity of Jesus is just rather remarkable and startling because John was just such a unique believer. Remember, this is the man that the Old Testament book of Malachi predicted, prophesied that he would be Christ's special and initial witness. He didn't just come on the scene and say, I'm here. This was prophesied of him. He was the one we're told would be crying as a voice in the wilderness. This is the man who prior to his birth, the angel Gabriel had announced to his father, Zacharias, that his son would, and I quote, go as a forerunner before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedience to the attitude of righteousness, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the man who God had sovereignly chosen to announce to the entire nation of Israel the arrival of their Messiah and the Son of God. And yet now, this same man was expressing doubt as to the very identity of the one that he had so boldly proclaimed as Messiah. But not only should John's doubt startle us, his doubt may even trouble you. It may disturb some of you because it might cause some to wonder, listen, if somebody as great as John the Baptist had his doubts about Jesus, then maybe I should too. I'm no John the Baptist. If someone as great as him had doubts, who am I to not have these doubts? Maybe I've made a mistake about putting my faith in Jesus. Maybe what I've believed about Jesus all along has been wrong. Maybe what my parents told me about Christ, maybe that's not true. What my Sunday school teachers have said, maybe that's not true. What my pastors have told me about Jesus in the Bible, maybe that's just wrong. Well, if John the Baptist's doubt about Jesus shakes your faith even a little, let me assure you, you really have nothing to be concerned about when it comes to who Jesus is. Because in this passage of Scripture, we not only read about John's doubt, we also read about Christ's answer to John's doubt. And his answer, folks, is absolutely satisfying. And it's in understanding how Jesus addressed John's doubt that our faith in Christ is actually, it's not shaken, it's strengthened, it's affirmed. Because our Lord's answer to John affirms that he is exactly who he claimed to be, the true Messiah, the Son of God, which means he's God the Son. And in addition to affirming Christ's identity, today we're going to learn from our passage some very valuable lessons about how 
we should deal with any doubt that arises in our own hearts. However, before we even begin to go through these verses, first need to ask ourselves what I think is a basic and an essential question. Question being this, why did Luke, the author of this gospel narrative, why did he choose to reveal that John the Baptist even had a doubt about Jesus? I mean, in a gospel account that is evangelistic, meaning it's designed to reveal the truth about Jesus, why would Luke even mention that anyone, especially someone as great as John, why would he even mention that he had a perplexing doubt pertaining to Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah? Why would he do this? What prophet is there in telling us about this? If you want to persuade us that Jesus is the Messiah, why would you tell us the greatest man had a doubt that he's the Messiah? I remind you that Luke wrote his gospel account in order to convince a Roman government official by the name of Theophilus that the things that Theophilus had heard from other witnesses about Jesus were absolutely true. This is what Luke wrote in the opening words of his gospel account, telling us why he wrote this book. Verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Now here's the reason. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So that you might be persuaded, Theophilus, that what you've heard about Jesus is absolutely true. Now you would think, it, this is Luke's purpose, that he might, might have wanted to hide John the Baptist's doubt from Theophilus and others who would be reading this gospel account. Not proclaim it for everybody to know John's struggle. So then why did Luke reveal John's doubt? Well, the most plausible explanation has to do with the fact that just a few verses before this incident, in fact, the very passage before this, Luke has told us the story about how Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son to life. He was dead. Jesus stopped the funeral procession. He said to the young man, arise. And he did. And in response, those who witnessed this remarkable miracle, the citizens of that little village, Nain, we read that they concluded that Jesus was a prophet. Nothing more. But God was visiting them by sending a new prophet the name of Jesus. He was no different from any of the other Old Testament prophets. Notice what we read just two verses earlier, Luke chapter 7, 16 and 17. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding areas. Now, that's all they concluded. Jesus is a great prophet, nothing more. And it's in this context of telling people all over Israel, reporting to all that Jesus is this new prophet sent by God, that Luke tells us that in responding 
to John the Baptist's doubt concerning the identity of Jesus, that Jesus answered his doubt by affirming very clearly that he isn't merely another prophet. He's not like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, Zechariah. He's not like them. Rather, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's the one who sent the prophets. He's not a prophet. The one whom John had previously declared him to be, he is. In other words, Luke's purpose then in telling us about John's doubt over Jesus is to clear it up, to clarify that John's confession has always been true and confirmed the truth about Jesus. He's not a prophet. He's God. He's Messiah. And so this passage, like all the other passages in Luke's gospel, is designed to persuade you as his readers that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He's exactly who eyewitnesses said he was. See, not only does Christ effectively answer John's doubt, but in answering it, he affirms the truth about himself. Now, as we approach our text, we're going to discover exactly why John was struggling with such a doubt and how Jesus answered this doubt. There's really no elaborate outline to this passage. I couldn't come up with one. The verses simply unfold in two major units of thought. First, we're told about John's doubt concerning the identity of Jesus, and then we're told about Christ's answer to John's doubt. So we begin by looking at John's doubt concerning the identity of Jesus. Notice verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Now, what are all these things? Well, they're the miracles that Jesus had been doing. Specifically, the most recent miracle of raising the widow of Nain's son from the dead. John's disciples go report to him that Jesus has been doing these remarkable miracles of compassion. Now, it has been a while since we've heard anything in Luke's gospel about John the Baptist. He just seems to have faded from the scene. The last thing Luke wrote about John was way back in chapter 3, verse 20, where he told us that Herod, King Herod, who really wasn't a king at all, but that's what he was called, had locked John up in prison. So what was this great man of God doing in prison? Why did Herod arrest him? Well, back in chapter 3, Luke briefly mentioned that Herod locked John up because John had rebuked him, that is to say, rebuked Herod publicly for all the wicked things he had done. He had done a lot of wicked things, but particularly a wicked act involving a woman by the name of Herodias, his brother's wife. So what wicked act was that? Well, in Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, we're told more of the details of this wicked act that John rebuked Herod for, and that resulted in him being arrested and ultimately in him being beheaded. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, for John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, what we learn from these verses is the reason that Herod had John the Baptist placed in prison was because John had publicly rebuked him for marrying his brother's sister, a woman named Herodias. As we know from the Bible, John was just what we call a very blunt individual. Tact was not in his personality. He's a straight shooter. He didn't mince words. Therefore, he didn't hesitate to boldly tell Herod that he was guilty of adultery. And for that denouncement, he was imprisoned and then eventually killed. 
And although no Bible writer tells us where John's prison was located, they mention he was in prison, no gospel writer says where it was. However, the Jewish historian Josephus, who actually worked for the Romans, but he was a Jewish historian, he records that John was imprisoned in a desolate desert fortress just east of the Dead Sea in what is today modern-day Jordan, the country of Jordan. It was named Machaerus. And though this was without question a very gloomy place, a uh, horrible place for John to be kept, he apparently, though, was allowed to receive visitors because Luke tells us here in chapter 7, verse 18, now while he was in prison, some of his disciples brought him word about the miraculous activities of Jesus. He couldn't see them. He's in prison. They come and say, this is what Jesus is doing. And surprisingly, it was these very miracles that Jesus had been doing that so troubled John, troubling him so much that as he was in prison, he began to wonder if he had been wrong all along about Jesus being the Messiah. Notice what Luke tells us in verse 19. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? So, this is pretty much self-explanatory. Calling two of his disciples who read John decides to immediately send them to Jesus to ask Jesus if he's the Messiah or if they should be looking for someone else who is the Messiah. The expression expected one is a Jewish, a Hebrew expression that's a reference to the Messiah because the Old Testament said he would be coming so they're looking, he's the expected one. We expect these prophecies to be fulfilled. So expected one simply is synonymous with Messiah. And that's exactly what John wants to know. He's asking Jesus if he is the Messiah. Or perhaps, perhaps I've made a mistake by wrongly proclaiming you as Messiah when there's actually someone else who's coming after you who is the Messiah, so tell us. In other words, John wants to know if Jesus is just another prophet like everybody else is saying. Or is he the Messiah? As John said, I once proclaimed. Now, there are several issues that I want to point out to you as we delve into this whole subject of doubting God and specifically trying to understand why John had this particular doubt about Christ's identity. The first issue being this. I want you to know that there is a difference between unbelief and an honest doubt. There is a vast difference. Unbelief is an outright rejection of the truth in spite of all the compelling evidence. It's what the Pharisees had. They saw the miracles. They heard our Lord's precious words. Yet all they could conclude is he's demonic. He's a phony. All the evidence didn't change their hearts. They were determined to reject Jesus no matter what he said, no matter what he did. That's unbelief. And it stems from a hardened heart that hates God and refuses to believe him. It is a heart that is unregenerate, hates God, hates what he has to say, and will never bend. An honest doubt, though, that's different. Because it stems from not a hardened heart of of unbelief. It stems from a desire to know the truth. Unbelief isn't interested in knowing the truth. Someone who doubts is. Someone who doubts desires to know the truth and obey the truth. In fact, an honest doubt is really more of a positive thing than a negative thing. Concerning the positive side of a doubt, one Bible teacher said this. 
He said, contrary to popular opinion, doubting is a normal, healthy, perhaps even necessary experience in spiritual growth. Disciples who never suffer periods of trembling confidence in their God, the Bible, the gospel, or their calling are most likely playing it safe and living in denial. Doubts force us to pursue the truth. Doubts fuel the believer's pursuit of real answers to life's most troubling questions. Doubts make deep divers out of novice swimmers. Doubts cause us to go down into the intricate realm of profound truths to find treasures many people don't even know exist. Doubters are deep thinkers who need something more than in church platitudes and folk theology. Doubters crave spiritual truths that work rather than cliches that merely decorate their denial. A doubter is no more a heretic than a questioner is a fool. Now in the case of John the Baptist, his was for certain an honest doubt. It was certainly not hardened unbelief. He genuinely wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah or if there was someone else coming after him who was the true Messiah. And the proof that he wanted to know the truth is that what did he do? He took his doubt to Jesus. If he didn't believe in him, why do you even take a doubt to him? He took his doubt to Jesus by asking him to solve his confusion. He knew that Jesus was the right one to ask. If he wasn't in pursuit of the truth, then he would never have sent his disciples to Jesus with this question. Listen, if you struggle with doubts, don't let that get you down. And above all else, don't assume that because you have these doubts, you're not really a Christian, you're not really a believer in Christ, or your doubts indicate a lack of faith in him. That's not true. On the contrary, your doubts and the fact that you are pursuing the truth by asking the Lord to resolve your doubts That proves that you are a believer. The very reason you have a doubt is because you have faith in the Lord and you want this doubt settled in your mind. As I've already said, the fact that John sent his disciples to Jesus for an answer to his doubt proved that he had faith in Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the one to look to. And the fact that when you have a doubt you're struggling with, you pray to the Lord asking him to clear up this doubt to give you an answer. It proves that you have faith in him. Second thing that I would want you to to see, and I want to point out to you, is that we need to be careful that we don't misinterpret John's doubt. So that we conclude by this, you know what? I don't think John is really doubting. That's what some Bible teachers have said. See, there have been some Bible teachers, and I'm not talking about false teachers, some very reputable Bible teachers, amongst them the great reformers Martin Luther and John Calvin who believed after studying this that it wasn't possible for someone like John to have this doubt. They could not reconcile in their mind John's doubt with his role as Christ's forerunner. So here's what they came up with. They reasoned that John, he himself, they said, he didn't have any doubts about Jesus. He only asked this question about the identity of Jesus for the sake of his disciples because they had doubts. They had doubts about Jesus. In other words, the thinking is that some of John's disciples must have just been wavering in their faith in Jesus and John knew that if he sent them to Jesus with this question that they would be reassured that they would be strengthened in their faith. But it wasn't John. John knew all along. Now, as I said, this was the view of some very reputable Bible teachers, but 
folks, I want you to be aware that the text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say that John's disciples were the ones who doubted Jesus. If that were the case, then Jesus would have directly addressed John's disciples. But Jesus addressed his answer where? Back to John, not his disciples. I think the text very clearly presents that this was John's doubt, and that's why Jesus sent these men back to John with the answer. In other words, the doubt came from John, so the answer was directed back to John and not anybody else. It was John who had this doubt, not his disciples. Now, along these same lines, there are other Bible teachers who, although they're very willing to admit that it was John, not his disciples, who doubted Jesus, still being troubled by John's doubt, they try to tone down his doubt, almost to the point of justifying it, almost to the point of excusing it, by telling us that John's doubt stems from just his emotional distraught state. Because they say it was just so difficult for him to be in prison. He, he wasn't thinking clearly. The thought is that John was just depressed being in prison. And in his depressed state, he just gave in to doubt. And because his confinement was such an agonizing experience for this free-spirited man who had lived in the wilderness so long that, that he just kind of caved in. He wasn't thinking clearly. Now, I don't question that prison was a horrific ordeal for John the Baptist. It would be for any of us. And that it was a real struggle for him to be confined. I mean, this was a man who had lived out in the wilderness, so confinement was very difficult. No question about that. But there is nothing in Scripture to suggest that John was the type of man who buckled under pressure. Nothing at all. In fact, just the opposite is true. The Bible presents John as a man of great strength and character, who was used to living under harsh conditions. Notice what Jesus said about John's strength of character just a little bit later in this chapter, verses 24 and 25. When the messengers of John had left, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury, are found in royal palaces. What Jesus was saying is that John was anything but easily shaken and weak. Rather, he's strong, he's sturdy, he's a rugged individual. He's not a man prone to vacillate and turn soft in his faith under extreme difficulties. Not at all. So if John's doubt didn't stem from a distraught, emotional state, then why in the world did this great man, the greatest of all men, have any doubt about Jesus being the Messiah when he had been so convinced of this prior to right now? Well, folks, the answer is right in the text. It's staring us in the face. Look again at verses 18 and 19. Look at it. The disciples of John reported to him about all of these things, all of Christ's miracles, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? You're looking at it, you might be saying, I still don't get it. Well, Matthew, in his gospel account of the same incident, he puts it a little bit differently. Same thing, but slightly different wording. And that slight difference, I think, helps us to understand exactly why John the Baptist had such a doubt. Here's what Matthew says, chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. 
Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by way of his disciples and said, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Now I want you to notice that it was when John's disciples reported to John the works that Jesus was doing, that's when John began to have his doubts. In other words, John could not understand why Jesus, if he was the Messiah, why he was involved in the kind of activities he was doing. And that's why John wondered if Jesus was the Messiah. It was the works of Jesus that he was doing that brought questions to the Baptist's mind as to whether or not Jesus was the expected one. So let me explain this. See, John's disciples reported to him that Jesus had been going all around Israel doing kind, compassionate things, such as he was healing the blind, he was restoring the lame, he was cleansing lepers, he was raising the dead to life, he was gathering a handful of men, sending them out to preach, cast out demons, and doing things like that. And it was those things that were bothering John, causing him to doubt the validity of Jesus as Messiah. Why? Watch this. Because Jesus wasn't doing the things that John had told the people that the Messiah would do when he came. That was his problem. Turn back to Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. It'll become very clear to you. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who's mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, folks, what we read here is that John, in clarifying to others that he's not the Messiah, because they wondered that, are you the Messiah? He said, I'm not the Messiah. But the one who is the Messiah, the one who's coming after me, he's going to come and execute judgment upon the wicked. That's exactly what John is talking about in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He'll gather the wheat as the true believers into his barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, when the Messiah arrives, he will cleanse Israel of sin by executing judgment on those who are evil. But that's not what John hears Jesus doing. Not at all. John's disciples have come to tell him that Jesus is just going around Israel doing good deeds. And John is perplexed. And John is doubting. And John is confused wondering why. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, why isn't he executing his blazing power of judgment upon the world? Here's how noted Bible teacher G. Campbell Morgan explained John's confusion. He puts it so well. He said, so far there's been no word of judgment. So far no woe had fallen from his lips. His was a mission of mercy, not of judgment. And John in prison is strangely perplexed. Abuses were everywhere. Lightning was needed to blast them. And he's healing men. Men had turned their back upon the divine government. They should have been dealt with in judgment, and he's preaching good news. 
John thought he would have smitten the oppressor to death, and he's singing the song of the gospel. Out of the perplexity of his heart, he sends his disciples hurriedly to him with the blunt and honest question, are you he that comes or shall we look for another? Now let me tell you in very simple terms the real reason and the key principle behind John the Baptist's doubt. And why this is so very pertinent for us because the reason John doubted, that's the same reason we doubt God at times. John had certain expectations of how the Messiah should behave and Jesus was not fulfilling those expectations. That is to say, John had put Jesus into this little box of what he expected him to do and because Jesus wasn't doing those things, John let his mind doubt. You see what the real problem is? Here's the real problem. Jesus didn't fit John's view of the Messiah. The compassionate works that Jesus was doing didn't harmonize with John's view of how Messiah should act in judgment and wrath. He could not reconcile his understanding of the Messiah as judge with Jesus' actions of mercy. Now we need to understand this. John was absolutely right when he said that Messiah would execute judgment. He wasn't wrong there. He was right because this is precisely what the Old Testament scriptures teach. That the Messiah when he comes, will execute judgment. But what John failed to do was understand that judgment isn't the only work of the Messiah. As you know, the Bible teaches that there are two comings of the Messiah. In his first coming, he didn't come to judge. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's in his second coming that he will execute wrath and judgment on all who are lost. But John doesn't understand this. John doesn't see two comings. John doesn't see what we know now to be the church age, separating by thousands of years his first and second coming. And so John's confusion stemmed from his ignorance and his preconceived view that the Messiah had to act and do exactly as he thought he should act and do at that very time. Never taking into account the full teaching of the Bible. This is a critical principle for us to grasp because the number one reason we fall into doubting God is because he does not fit our view of how we think he should act. Isn't that true as you think about your own life? It's certainly true in my life. If God doesn't do something or he does do something that just doesn't line up with what we think he should have done, then we tend to question him. We tend to doubt him. So when he allows some tragedy to enter your life, how easy it is to doubt his goodness. And when you're walking in fellowship with the Lord, you're faithfully serving him. You're doing the best you can to honor him. And then something devastating happens to you. How easy it is to doubt his wisdom in letting you, his child, his servant, suffer so much. Or when some disaster hits and thousands of people die suddenly, how easy it is to doubt that God is just and righteous because it just doesn't compute with how we think God should act in ruling his world. Beloved, the bottom line reason that John doubted Jesus and the reason we struggle with doubts is because we think that God is obligated to act and to behave in the way that we believe he should act and behave. And when he doesn't, we become confused and perplexed, and we begin to question our faith. 
So what's the solution to doubting God? It's found in the answer that Jesus gave to John concerning his question. Verse 20. When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Now, having been told by John to go to Jesus to ask him this question, we read that that's exactly what they did. Now, I want you to notice that upon hearing this question coming from someone as spiritually mature, as great as John the Baptist, one might have expected Jesus to be annoyed even upset, even maybe a little angry, but notice he wasn't. He doesn't offer any rebuke to these men for these men to take back to John. He doesn't say, go tell John I am extremely disappointed in him. I expected better of him. He doesn't give them a scolding message to take back to their teacher. In fact, the Lord is just so gentle and so patient in responding to John's question. Notice what happens next. Verses 21 and 22. At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and what you've heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. I want you to notice that in the providence of God, as God orchestrated all of this, his timing is perfect, When the disciples of John finally arrived where Jesus was ministering, we read that he was in the process of healing. Healing many people who were diseased and demon-possessed and blind. Right at that very moment when they came upon him. In other words, he was doing the very thing that was so troubling to John. Works of kindness, works of compassion. And John's disciples were there to see it all for themselves. They'd heard about it, now they see it. And then after putting on this awesome display of his miraculous, compassionate power, Jesus tells John's disciples, go back to John and report to him what they've seen. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor of the gospel preach to them. The amazing thing about Christ's response to John's answer is that he didn't directly answer his question. The question is, are you the Messiah? And instead of just answering directly, yes, I am, he tells them, go back to John and tell him I'm doing the very works that are troubling him. Now, why, why did he do this? John's troubled about my deeds of kindness, so go tell John about my deeds of kindness. Listen, this list of miraculous healings, good works that Jesus mentions, they're actually a string of several quotes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and John would have known that. And all these verses declare what the Messiah will do when he comes. In other words, Jesus is quoting from various verses of Scripture that prophetically speak of the works that Messiah would do when he came, giving sight to the blind, cleansing lepers, restoring hearing to the deaf, raising the dead, preaching the gospel to the poor. They're all from the book of Isaiah. He says, go tell John, go tell John that I'm doing these works, these works that Isaiah said I would do, these messianic verses. So instead of explaining to John why he wasn't executing his wrath and judgment at this time, Jesus simply verified that he was the Messiah. Note this, how? By appealing to the Bible. 
See, Jesus took John back to the scriptures to answer his doubt. By the very way Jesus worded his answer, John certainly would have understood that Christ's behavior was in accordance with what Isaiah had said about him in the scriptures. Folks, this is precisely the way for you to deal with any doubt when it arises in your thinking. Whenever you are troubled about the way the Lord is working in your life and you can't reconcile your view of him and his actions, then go back to the word because that's where you'll get the right answer. See, the reason we doubt God is simply because we have an inadequate and oftentimes erroneous view of God. And when our understanding of God is faulty or just out of balance, not seeing the whole picture, and that was the case with John the Baptist, who wasn't wrong, he just didn't see it all. He didn't see the totality of God's revelation. Even if he didn't know about the church age, which is certainly understandable, he should have known that there were other scriptures that spoke of the sufferings of Messiah, of the healings of Messiah. But that's when we get in trouble. When we get truth out of balance or we're ignorant of biblical truth, then we're prone to have doubts about him. And therefore, the way to protect yourself from doubts The way to resolve your doubts is to go back to Scripture because it's there you'll find the full picture of God's revelation that will dispel your doubt about Him. The problem isn't with God. The problem is with our understanding of God. This is precisely what Jesus did with His troubled disciples. Remember on the road to Emmaus? We'll get to that, hopefully in this century, when we get to the end of Luke's Gospel. He called them slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now you believe in some of the prophecies. You believe that Messiah should have come and destroyed Rome, rescued you, delivered you from your political enemies. That's what you're focused on. But what about all the prophecies? See, these men had chosen to focus just on some of the prophecies concerning Messiah. Scriptures that spoke of him as a conquering hero. They neglected, though, to consider the many prophecies that spoke of Messiah's suffering, of his substitutionary death. So Jesus took them back to the Word and gave them a Bible study, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. He explained to them the things concerning himself and all the Scriptures. Could you imagine being at that Bible study as he went through the Scriptures and said, this is about me, this is about the Messiah, this is about him. That's exactly what you need to do when doubts assault you. The same thing. You have to believe that the answer to your doubt is in the Word of God. And then you have to go and open your Bibles, search the Scriptures, find the answer. As John MacArthur put it, he said, The cure for such doubt is to read, study, understand, and meditate on God's revelation in Scripture. But before sending John's disciples back to him, notice Jesus had one final word for John a word that would help him to resolve any doubt that might arise in his mind, and a word that will likewise help you if you struggle with the doubt. That word is expressed in the form of a beatitude. A beatitude means a blessing. Blessed are those. It's found in verse 23. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now the sense of these words is blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me so that he falls into a trap. See, the word for offense has to do with how birds were trapped in those days when a a bait stick was stepped on that just triggered the trap so that the bird was caught. What Jesus means by this picture of a bird being trapped is that the only way to be blessed 
The only way to be blessed with joy and peace in your heart is to make sure that you don't stumble and fall in your faith by being disappointed in the way that the Lord chooses to work in your life. In essence, what Jesus is saying is that the way to keep from falling into doubt and stumbling in the Christian life is to not be disappointed with God and his will. In other words, don't stumble over what God does either by his actions in world events or by the way he works in your life. Trust him and don't lean on your own understanding. Sadly though, there are many believers who have fallen in their Christian lives because they have been disappointed with God thinking that God has failed them because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. He didn't do what they expected him to do. They're disappointed in him because he didn't preserve their marriage. It fell apart. Yet they prayed that it would be preserved and God didn't intervene. Fell apart. They're disappointed in him because he didn't heal a loved one. His loved one died and they're, they're so hurt. They're disappointed in him because they find themselves in chronic pain and God hasn't come and relieve that pain. They're disappointed in him because he didn't give them the job, the spouse, the success that they prayed for. So they've allowed their disappointment with God to trap them. It is a trap. So that they have fallen into a substandard and inferior type of Christian experience. Oh, they know the Lord. Once you know him, you you can't unknow him. Once you're saved, you can't be lost. But now they're out of fellowship with him. There's no joy in their life. They often don't even go to church anymore. They're just so hurt and disappointed. So this was was our Lord's answer to John's doubt. Go back to the word of God, John, and see the big picture of my total revelation and not just one small part of my word. And John, make sure that you don't stumble over me because you're disappointed in what I'm doing. Just trust me, John, even if you don't understand what I'm doing, and you'll be blessed with joy and peace. And folks, that's exactly how Jesus wants you to deal with any doubt, perplexity, confusion over him that arises in your mind. Open God's word for answers and then trust him even when you don't understand what he's he's doing in your life. I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it when he said, when we cannot see the hand of God, we can trust the heart of God. So, question is, did John the Baptist ever let Christ's answer resolve his doubt? Well, the text doesn't explicitly state anything about this, but apparently he did. Because Matthew, Matthew tells us in chapter 14 of his gospel narrative that when John was killed, when he was beheaded by Herod, his disciples, what did they do? They reported his death to Jesus, indicating that when he died, John, he hadn't turned away from Jesus. He had settled his faith that Jesus was the Messiah. He had received the word and came back to what he had always believed. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense that John's disciples would have reported his death to him. If he meant nothing to him, they they wouldn't have reported his death to him. Now, most likely John died without having all of his questions answered, which is fine. We don't have to have all of our questions answered, like how or when Christ would judge the wicked and establish his kingdom on earth. I suspect John died not knowing these things. But he had his doubt about the identity of Jesus answered and settled and resolved. 
He knew that Jesus was indeed the true Messiah and the Son of God. The question is, how about you? Do you know for certain who Jesus Christ is? The good news is you can, if you don't, you can, how? By searching the scriptures. The scriptures reveal him. The scriptures will lead you to faith in him. Whenever I'm speaking to an unbeliever, witnessing to this person, I recommend that they start. It's not enough to say, go read your Bible, because they'll start in the book of Genesis. Then they'll stop in the book of Leviticus. So, I tell them to start by reading the Gospel of John. Why the Gospel of John? Because the Apostle John said he specifically wrote his Gospel to help others to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and by believing in him, they would have eternal life. The whole Gospel of John is a series of miracles that Jesus did, all pointing to him being God in human flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and all these miracles point to that. Here's how John put it in John chapter 20, 30, and 31. He said, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Let me stop here and say, what John is saying is, I have just under the inspiration of the Spirit of God selected certain miracles to tell you about that Jesus did, but he did many other things that I haven't written about. So why then, John, did you write about these miracles in particular and these works? Well, he tells us in verse 31, But these have been written, here's why I wrote this, so that, here's the purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Christ is another word for Messiah, the Son of God, another way of saying God the Son, and that believing you may have life in his name. Meaning that you've come to a point in your life where you not only recognize Jesus as Messiah, You recognize your sinfulness. You recognize you're not right with God. You recognize that you have to repent, turn from your sin, turn to God, trust Christ to be your Savior and Lord. That's what John is talking about. So, if you don't know him, come to know him. Search the scriptures. See the evidence. Place your trust in Christ. Now, if you are a Christian and you're struggling with doubt at this present time, then go back to the word. Ask the Lord to show you the truth, and he will. And then trust him, no matter what the circumstances might be in your life. Now, if you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about anything that you've heard this morning, or just see me as we close the service. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this most unusual of passages, but most revealing of passages. Lord, we indeed affirm that you are Messiah, the Son of God. And... To those who who know you, Lord, you are a joy. We delight in you. We pray for those who still may be searching, still may not know. Draw them to yourself that the hardness of their heart might be broken up by you, that you would bring them to faith. And for those who are struggling with doubts, those believers who are struggling with doubts, may they find answers from what they've heard this morning and rest in you. Know the joy, the peace, the happiness that comes the delight of the soul that comes from trusting you even when they don't understand. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.